Section 7 of Clever Hans, The Horse of Mr. Von Austen by Oscar Funkst, translated by Carl Leo Rahn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Explanation of the Observations, Part 1 the author, having described the observations made upon the horse, and having discussed the activities of the questioner upon the basis of observations made objectively and upon his own introspections, and having verified the results thus obtained by means of laboratory tests, we are now in a position to solve satisfactorily all the problems which this interesting case has presented. That which is least difficult to understand is the horse's seeming knowledge of language and particularly his ability to answer questions, no matter by whom or in what dialect they were put. As a matter of fact, it made no difference who desired an answer, for the only person upon whom the experiment depended was the questioner, that is, the one who asked the horse to tap. We have everywhere designated this person as the experimenter or questioner. It was he who gave the directions, and since all that were involved were visual signs, the drama in which Hans appeared as the hero was nothing but a pantomime. All speech was superfluous, and, except in so far as the tone of voice in which it was spoken was soothing or reprimanding, it was quite unintelligible to the horse. From the foregoing, the reader understands without further explanation Hans's ability to count and to make computations. If the number of taps had depended solely upon the length of time and the angle at which the questioner bent forward, the horse would have been able to tap any number desired. Since, however, only the right foot was employed, the left one being used at most for making a final tap, the number of taps had an upper limit which was due to the fatigue of the animal. This limit was about 100. That it was possible to ask such questions as how many times is 100,000 contained in 654,321 and thus to give problems involving millions is perfectly clear. All wonderful feats of counting and computation which were accomplished while thus experimenting with the horse are to be credited not to the horse but to the questioner. If such is the case, they certainly cannot be considered astonishing. Thus, when to the question, how many of the gentlemen present are wearing straw hats, the horse answers correctly in accordance to the wording of the question and omits the straw hat of a lady, then Mr. Von Austen is the guide. It is no wonder that Hans never showed the slightest excitement when confronted with difficult problems, nor that it apparently took no time whatever to solve them. Hans, however, was also a faithful mirror of all the errors of the questioner. Apart from mistakes due to occasional interruptions on the part of visitors, these errors had two sources, faulty computation and inadequate concentration, i.e., aside from arithmetical errors on the part of the questioner, were his premature or belated movements. Since both of these factors might be operative, the following three possibilities arise. A. The questioner computes correctly but does not move at the proper moment. Nearly all the errors which had been accredited to the horse were of this kind. A part of these errors had the appearance of being significant. That is, they might be interpreted as a misapprehension of the question. If, for instance, instead of a sum only one of the quantities was given, or if instead of a product only one of the factors was given, it might be interpreted that the horse simply wished to repeat the problem. 
Thus, Mr. Van Osten, in response to the question, how much is 3 times 5, twice in succession received the answer 3, and upon my question, how much is 3 plus 4, he tapped 3, and to how much is 2 times 6, he tapped 6, and to what is 1 fourth of 36, 4. In part, certainly in the second and third example cited, an individual quantity or factor had been emphasised in the consciousness of the questioner. Compare page 105. And in part, the reactions were due to chance. Thus, when Mr. Hahn asked the question, what is half of 10, he received the following responses, 2 and 10, and then 17 and 3. To this class belong also the tests made by the Commission of September and reported in Supplement 3. See page 255. Other errors, even though they may not have appeared to be significant, might yet have been characterised as mistakes due to speed, as when, e.g., Hans made an error of one unit, and sometimes, though less frequently, of two units, too much or too little in his response one might be led to believe that Hans had not made an error of calculation, but merely of counting in the process of giving his result, which always had to be done by the cumbersome method of tapping. As a matter of fact, the trouble lay in the wrong degree of concentration on the part of the questioner. In errors of plus one, tension was too slight. In those of minus one, it was too great. See page 91. This comes out clearly in a comparison of the two more extensive series which I took in the case of Mr. Schillings. During the first series, he was well disposed and was able to concentrate effectively, while during the second, he was nervous and easily diverted. This difference in intensity of concentration in the case of the two series is attested, not only subjectively by Mr. Schillings's introspective statement, but may be measured objectively by means of the number of final taps which the horse gave with his left foot during these two series. We saw, page 94, that these final taps were always a sign of intense concentration, and, as a matter of fact, one half of the horse's responses to Mr. Schillings during the first series were made in this way, whereas in the second series only a third were of this sort. I, myself, was never able to get, without conscious control, a greater number of this type of response. We may therefore say that, in the first series, we had a high degree of tension or concentration, whereas in the second series we had a low degree. The errors distribute themselves over the two series as follows. Series 1, 31 tests. Correct responses, 87%. Incorrect responses, plus 1, 0%, plus 2, 0%, minus 1, 13%, minus 2, 0%. Series 2, 40 tests. Correct responses, 40%. Incorrect responses, plus 1, 40%, plus 2, 8%, minus 1, 2.5%, minus 2, 0%, and 9.5% other kinds of errors. We find in series 1 no plus 1 errors, but only minus 1 errors. In series 2, on the other hand, the errors are almost exclusively in the plus 1 category, equaling the number of correct responses, and there is only one minus 1 error. A series obtained in the case of Mr. Von Austen is almost as satisfactory an illustration. When he first began to take part in tests in which the procedure was the one we characterised as without knowledge, and had to note their complete failure, he was thrown into such confusion that the responses in the case of procedure with knowledge were also incorrect. 
The errors there were always plus one, whereas those in the case of procedure with knowledge, which were due to quite different causes, were very great and inconstant. The number of plus one errors obtained on this occasion comprises one-fourth of all the plus errors which were ever obtained in the case of Mr. von Osten during the entire course of these experiments. Finally, I would mention two examples of my own. In the course of my very first attempts with Hans, I obtained, as I said on page 89, three responses in a total of five, which exceeded the correct result by one. This I would explain by the fact that, although I employed a high degree of concentration, I nevertheless was somewhat sceptical. The result was a certain deficiency in the degree of concentration. The second example which I would cite is taken from the period in which I had already discovered the cue to Hans's reactions, and it goes to show that I was then still able to eliminate the influence of this knowledge and to work ingeniously. To the question, how much is 9 less 1, I, momentarily indisposed, received the answer 10, then 6 times in succession the answer 9, and finally the correct response, 8. Errors of another kind, though not infrequent offences against the very elements of counting and the fundamental arithmetical processes, were regarded in part as intentional jokes and by an authority in pedagogy as a sign of independence and stubbornness which might also be called humour. Hans emphatically asserted that 2 plus 2 was 3, or he would answer questions given in immediate succession as follows. How many eyes have you? 2. How many ears? 2. How many tails? Two. These errors, as a matter of fact, evince neither wit nor humour, but prove incontrovertibly that Hans had not even mastered the fundamentals. Many of the errors baffle every charitable attempt at interpretation. These gave the horse the reputation of capriciousness and unreliability. If Hans designated the tone E as the 17th, or G as the 11th, or when he called Friday the 35th day of the week, or believed 50 Fennig to be worth only 48, the cause of these responses lay either in the insufficient degree of tension on the part of the questioner, as in the first three examples, or in the extravagant expenditure of the same, as in the last case. If, therefore, the horse at times would hopelessly flounder, which would seem to be indicated by tapping now with the right and now with the left foot, then, as a matter of fact, this form of reaction came about as was described on page 61, with this difference that there we had to do with the voluntary controlled movements on the part of the questioner, whereas here they are the result of an unsuitable degree of tension which expressed itself in frequent and disconcerting jerks. Besides the answer 3, this so-called floundering was the only reaction the average person could obtain from the horse in the absence of Mr. Von Austin and Mr. Schillings. It would, however, occur also in the case of these gentlemen, and would be received by them with resentment, when in truth it was Hans's greatest feat, for he showed his extremely keen reaction upon every movement of the questioner. To this group belong also the errors in the case of higher numbers, the sole cause of which lay in the difficulty with which tension could be maintained, and the body kept motionless for so long a period. These errors occurred in accordance with a certain law, if, for instance, a certain test repeatedly evoked incorrect responses, the questioner would gradually increase the duration of tension and would thus come a little nearer to the desired goal with every test. In this way, Mr. Von Austin, desiring 30 as an answer, obtained consecutively the responses 25, 28, 
30, and I myself for the answer 20 received consecutively the responses 10, 18, 20. See also the laboratory tests, page 105. Sometimes, too, the questioner would flag in his efforts before the goal was reached. Thus, in one of my first tests, I received for the answer 11 the following responses. 1, 4, 5, 7, 4. I was unable to get beyond 7. In other instances, the horse responded first with too few and then with too many taps. The correct response, therefore, could only be obtained after an appreciable amount of gauging of tension, as in target practice there must be a gauging of distance. See page 92. In this way, Mr. Von Austen obtained for 10 the responses 8, 8, 11, 10, and Mr. Schillings for 17 received 9, 16, 19, 18, 18, 14, 9, 9, and finally, after some efforts, 17 taps. Thus, there was a rise from 9 to 19, then a fall back to 9, and after 8 tests, the correct response. As long as we attempt to explain this fact as error on the part of the horse, so long will it remain inexplicable. But the moment we regard it from the point of view of the psychology of the tension of expectation, it becomes perfectly plain. The same holds true for the curious predilection which Hans appears to have for the numbers from 2 to 4, especially for 3. See page 68. As a matter of fact, the cause of this lies in nothing other than the inadequate concentration of attention on the part of the questioner, and less often in an extravagant expenditure of concentration, which implodes immediately after the first tap on the part of Hans, as in the case of my first tests. But usually the cause lay in a complete lack of concentration, though the same result may be produced by various causes. It is usually after two to four taps of the horse's foot that the questioner, who does not concentrate, makes his first move which naturally puts an end to the tapping on the part of the horse. As a rule, this jerk follows immediately upon the second tap. On the other hand, relaxation of attention is very difficult upon the first tap, see page 95. The questioner, however, would expect further tapping, and therefore would not bring his body back to a complete erect position, and the result would be a 3, the last unit of which would be given by the final tap with the left foot. Here we also obtained light as to the answers which Hans gave in those tests in which the method was that of procedure without knowledge. These responses had nothing to do with the problem, for neither the horse nor anyone else knew the solution. But in the horse's responses, the degree of tension of the questioner's concentration was faithfully mirrored. An experimenter who was skilful in concentrating, as Mr. von Osten, obtained, almost without exception, very high numbers whereas one whose concentration was slight would receive in response to nearly all questions the answers 2, 3, or 4. Thus, the Count Zu Castel received in response to 17 questions the answers 2, 3 times, the answer 3, 6 times, and the answer 4, 4 times, two answers being accidentally correct. Another group of errors was characterised as stubbornness on the part of Hans, such as his persistence in repeating an incorrect response, or his repetition of a former correct answer in response to later questions, where it was perfectly senseless. During a demonstration before a large number of persons, I held a slate with the number 13 upon it, within the horse's view, and also within view of the spectators. I, myself, did not know what number was written on the slate. Having been asked to tap the number, Hans responded by tapping 
five, the grandstand shouted wrong. I asked Hans to try again. Four times in succession he answered five. At another time Mr. Von Osten and I each whispered a number, seven and one respectively, into the horse's ear and asked him to add the two. Three times in succession he tapped eleven. After the test had been repeated in accordance with procedure with knowledge and a correct response had been received, we tried once more a test of procedure without knowledge. Again he responded with an eleven. On a third occasion I asked Hans to tap five. He responded with a four and then correctly with a five. Thereupon I asked him to tap six. Again he responded with a four. Then I asked him to tap seven. Once more he responded with a four, and only when I proceeded to count aloud did he tap seven correctly. I had him repeat the seven, and then went over to nine. Promptly he responded with another seven. In these cases, which by the way were not very frequent, we have to do not with stubbornness on the part of Hans, but with the persistence of that number in the consciousness of the questioner. Modern psychology has recognised this tendency of ideas, which have once been in consciousness, to reappear on other occasions even though they are wholly inappropriate. This has been termed perseverative tendency, perseveration tendence. While the errors thus far discussed appeared sporadically in long series of correct responses, there might still be observed at times a massing of errors, usually at the beginning of a day of experimentation or at the beginning of a new series. We were regularly told that Hans always had to have time to adjust himself to new circumstances. The records often showed comments such as these. After a number of practice tests, the horse appeared particularly well disposed. Or, Hans, at first inattentive, does not respond. Suddenly, he gets the hang of things. Different questioners who worked with the horse required different lengths of time to obtain proper responses. Some needed a quarter of an hour, others scarcely half a minute. I myself found that in the degree in which I learned to control my attention, in that degree did this phenomenon tend to disappear, but would reappear the moment I became indisposed. From this we see that, instead of attributing all sorts of mental characteristics, such as stubbornness, etc., to the horse, we should lay them to the account of the questioner. As a matter of fact, we find that this getting into the sweep of things, i.e. the overcoming of psychophysical inertia, has long been known in the case of man and has been experimentally determined and called anregung, excitation, by the psychiatrist Krappelin and his pupil Amberg. A massing of errors towards the end of a long series occurred only when the questioner was fatigued. There was nothing which had to be interpreted as fatigue or indisposition on the part of the horse, except in the few cases of very large numbers, compare page 67. To be sure, Mr. Von Austen always offered these two excuses. That they were without warrant is shown by the fact that Hans, after appearing indisposed or fatigued while working with one questioner, would nevertheless react promptly and correctly a moment later for some other experimenter, and furthermore, when working with me, the number of his correct responses would rise or fall with my own mental disposition. Finally, I would here note a rather interesting observation for which I am indebted to Mr. Schillings and the Count Zucastel. 
they had noticed independently of each other that the horse would often fail to react when for any length of time he was given problems dealing with abstract numbers even though they were of the simplest kind but that he would immediately improve whenever the questions had to do with concrete objects. They believed that Hans found applied mathematics more interesting and that abstract problems, or those which were altogether too elementary, bored him. The Counts du Castel furthermore noticed that the responses tended to be more correct as soon as he had the horse count objects which he himself, Castel, could see during the test. Quite in accord with this is the statement to be found in the report of the September Commission, in which we find this note in a discussion of the arithmetical problems, not involving visual objects, which the gentleman already mentioned had given to the horse. The horse responded with less and less attentiveness and appeared to play with the questioner. Here again, that was looked for in the animal which should have been sought in the man. Mr. Shillings was capable of intense but not continued concentration, and it was he who was bored, not the horse. And it was the Count Zucastel and not the horse that found it necessary to invoke the aid of perceptual objects to bring his attention to the proper height of concentration. The reader will see that thus far I have supposed the horse to be a never-failing mechanism and have placed all errors to the account of the questioner. The horse never failed to note the signal for stopping, and therefore never was the immediate cause of an error. It is not to be denied that now and then he would cease tapping spontaneously, and in this way would become the cause of an error. We have no data on this point, but undoubtedly the horse's share in the total number of errors was very slight. B. Another source of error was faulty computation on the part of the questioner. The questioner made the signal for stopping when the expected number of taps had been reached. The horse faithfully mirrored the miscalculation of the questioner. I have knowledge of only one such case. The journals report that once Mr. von Austen, when someone called to his attention that Hans had indicated the wrong day of the week, replied, Yes, you are right. It was not Thursday, but Friday. Whereupon Hans, being asked again, promptly responded correctly. This appeared to the reporter in question as proof of the subjective influence of Mr. von Austen upon the horse. C. When errors in calculation and failures in proper concentration combine, i.e. when the questioner makes a mistake in calculation because he is excited or inattentive and for the same reason does not make the movement, which is the signal for stopping, in accordance with the number which he deems to be the correct answer, then the result is usually wrong, but it may be correct in the few cases in which the two errors exactly compensate each other. Nothing has been so effective in establishing Hans's reputation, nothing has brought him so many followers as these cases in which he, rather than his mentor, has been in the right. Compared with the mass of cases in which Hans was wrong, these latter cases are diminishingly few in number, yet these few made such an impression upon the observers that their number tended to be overestimated. As a matter of fact, I have been able to discover records of only seven such cases. Two of these were reported by the Count du Castel. On the 8th of September, he entered the horse's stall alone, and believing it to be the seventh day of the month, he asked Hans the date. The horse responded correctly with eight taps. At another time, he held up before Hans a slate, on which were written the numbers 5, 8 and 3, and asked the horse to indicate their sum, which in the momentary excitement vaguely appeared to Castel to be 10. 
To his chagrin, he noticed that Hans continued to tap. Thereupon, he intentionally remained motionless until the horse had stopped tapping spontaneously, as he thought, at 16. The newspapers reported that the numbers to be added had been 5, 3 and 2, and that the questioner had expected the answer 11, but Hans had in three tests always ceased tapping at 10. In both cases, the questioner regarded the answer of the horse as wrong and recognised his mistake when his attention was called to it. I myself had the same experience. One time I received in response to the question, what day of the week is Monday, the answer 2, although I had expected the answer 1. At another time I asked, how much is 16 less 9, and the horse responded with 7 taps, although I had erroneously expected 5. I noticed my mistake only when my attention was called to it by one of those present. Another example is related by Mr Shillings. A row of coloured cloths lay before Hans. Besides them stood an army officer. Pointing to the latter's red coat, Mr Shillings asked the horse to indicate, by means of tapping, the place in the row whereupon a piece of the same colour lay. Hans tapped eight times, but Mr Shillings reprimanded him because the red piece was, as a matter of fact, second in the row. Upon a repetition of the test, Hans again tapped eight. By some, the facts are recounted as having been the other way round, namely, Hans tapped two instead of eight. This, of course, would call for a different explanation. It was noticed that at the place which would be indicated by eight taps, there was not a red piece, but a carmine-coloured piece of cloth. A newspaper reports, somewhat vaguely, a sixth case as follows. Hans was asked to spell the name Donhoff, and began correctly D... O umlaut. Mr. von Osten, who somehow began to think of another name, Donher, interrupted him and wished to correct him by suggesting O instead of O umlaut, i.e. two taps instead of three. Hans, however, continued to spell the entire word with great equanimity. He had not erred. A similar experience is reported by Mr. H. von Tepelaski, the well-known hippologist. Although the details have slipped from his memory, he reports that in the case in question, the correct answer was thrice refused by the questioner, who thought that the horse's answer was incorrect. Hans, upon being severely reprimanded in a loud and harsh tone of voice, turned about as if disgusted with the injustice of the man and made straight for his stall. It was clear that in the cases described, we are not dealing with accidentally correct responses, for in nearly every case the test was repeated a number of times and the same responses were received each time. As a matter of fact, my own introspection convinced me that the third and fourth cases were surely, and the first and sixth were very probably, due to insufficient concentration on the part of the questioner. Accordingly, there is everywhere in these cases a difference of plus one or plus two between the number thought of and the number tapped. See page 92F. The data in the second and fifth, and still more in the seventh case, were too meagre to warrant an attempt at explanation, for it is not even known whether Hans responded with more or fewer taps than was expected by the questioner. It is unfortunate that a more complete record was not made. The frequent and intentional attempts of Mr. von Osten to induce the horse to give an incorrect response, which, by the way, were regularly unsuccessful, belong only apparently to this group. Thus he asked, e.g., 2 times 2 is 5, is it not? 3 times 3 is 8? etc. But Hans refused to be misled and responded correctly. This was from the very beginning one of the main arguments for independent thinking on the part of the horse. The actual procedure was as follows. 
even though the questioner had said two times two is five, there was still present in his consciousness the number four. I myself would think either of the first number of the equation, i.e. two times two, in which case Hans would respond with four taps, or I would have in mind the second member, i.e. five, in which case he would respond with five taps. Never did I succeed in thinking of both at the same time. The association between the thought two times two and the concept four is so close and supported by so many other associations that the attempt to form a new one that is at complete variance with all these is futile. One may say two times two equals five, but it is impossible to conceive it. Let us turn now from the tests in counting and computation to those in reading. We have seen that Hans manifested his seeming knowledge of language symbols in a threefold manner. He might approach a slate on which was written the symbol asked for, or he would indicate its location in a series of slates by means of tapping, or finally by means of a so-called spelling of the word which was written upon a slate or placard. These responses by means of approaching a placard were very often unsuccessful, while indications by means of tapping were scarcely ever unsuccessful. If it were true that higher intellectual processes... Footnote. Professor Shaler, a well-known American savant, mentions a three-year-old pig belonging to a Virginian farmer that was able to read and had some understanding of language. From numerous which were written upon cards and spread out before it, this pig could compose dates. It could also select from among certain cards one upon which was written a given name asked for by the master. Supposedly, no signs of any kind were given. Shaler thought to exclude effectively the sense of smell, which is so highly developed in the pig that he, Shaler, himself smelled at the cards, since he also possessed an acute olfactory sense. Since we are told that the farmer in question made a business of supplying trained pigs for exhibition purposes, the case appears suspicious. We hear of a pig exhibited in London that was able to read and spell, and could also tell the time by the watch. We cannot tell, however, whether the two pigs, which beyond a doubt were mechanically trained to respond to signals, were identical or not, End of footnote. were here involved, then the converse would have to be expected, for tapping required not only the ability to read, but also the ability to count. If, on the other hand, we assume that the horse simply followed the directions given by the questioner's movements, this seeming difficulty resolves itself, for it would be more difficult for Hans to perceive the signs which he receives while moving than those which he receives while tapping. When we recall that it was easier to direct the horse to a placard near the end of a row than one nearer the centre, see page 81, we can readily understand how it was that during the experimentation carried on by the September Commission, Supplement 3, page 255, Hans was able to point out immediately the placards on which were written the names Castell and Stumpf, for they were at the two extreme ends, but was unsuccessful in locating the one on which was written the name Meissner, which was not a bit more difficult to read, but was located at the fourth place in the row. He first approached the fifth card, then upon repetition of the test he pointed out the other neighbouring tablet, namely the third. In spelling, Hans was quite indifferent whether his table with the 84 number signs upon it stood before him, for he had no knowledge of letters. 
Neither Mr. Von Austen nor Mr. Shillings required it, for the former knew the table by heart, and Mr. Shillings told me that before every test he made a note of the numbers which were necessary to indicate the required letters, trusting in this way to control the responses of the horse, never guessing that by doing so he was making it possible for the horse to answer correctly. The newspaper reports aroused much interest at the time by stating that Hans was able to spell such proper names as Pluskov and Bethman Holweg, even to putting the difficult W and TH. The friends of Mr. von Osten at the same time called attention to the exquisite auditory acuteness of the horse, which enabled him to perceive the aspirated W and to discriminate between the TH and T. The TH is softer than the T in German, translator. This explanation, of course, must have appeared somewhat daring even at that time. Hans was quite guiltless on the many limitations imputed to him concerning his knowledge of symbols. That he was unable to read capitals or Latin script was merely a vagary of the master, like the belief that it was necessary to confine oneself in one's question to a certain vocabulary and to a certain form. Mr. von Austen's apparent failure to elicit responses from the horse on topics of which it was ignorant is a beautiful illustration of the power of imagination. Mr. von Austen was convinced from the very first that Hans could not answer such questions. When the belief in success was lacking, of course, there was not the requisite amount of concentration which alone leads to perceptible expressive movements and thus elicits a successful reaction on the part of the horse. Mr. Shillings, owing to his great impressionability, remained long under the spell of Mr. von Austen's point of view. Thus, I find in the record of the September Commission that the question, how much is 3 plus 2, was answered incorrectly by Hans, but he responded correctly the moment Mr. Shillings replaced the word plus, which was tabooed, by the word and. For a long time he could receive no response to questions put in French, until one day he made the discovery that, curiously enough, the animal never responded adequately unless he himself firmly believed in the possibility of success. It is noteworthy that the Count du Castel, independently of Mr. Schillings, made the same discovery. Mr. Schillings made his curious discovery, which he was unable to interpret, but which aroused some suspicion on the following occasion. One day, whether accidentally, or because his prejudice was overcome, he commanded Didou. Hans responded promptly with two taps. He was greatly surprised, and believed that Hans had gotten hold of the French by hearing it spoken in his environment. Possibly he understood trois and quatre. He put the questions and received correct responses. He asked again, dix, vingt, and so on up to soixante. At soixante-six he became doubtful. Indeed, Hans failed him. At quatre-vingt, the game began again. Cent again succeeded. The old saying that faith will move mountains was verified once more. Footnote. It has been scientifically proven that a number of supposed mystical phenomena, table moving, table wrapping, and divination by means of the rod, are all the result of involuntary movements made unawares by those concerned, just as in the case of this work with Hans. We must, of course, accept those not infrequent instances in which the phenomena in question are purposely and fraudulently simulated. There is this difference, however, that there the thing affected is a lifeless object, the table or the rod. Here it is a living organism, the horse. 
Hence, there the immediate effect of the movement is physical work in the form of energy expended in moving the table. Here the movement becomes a visual stimulus. A number of observations which I find in the relevant literature, and which I shall introduce into this chapter, may serve to show how close is the similarity between the two cases, how much depends upon the questioner, and how little really upon the instrument, whether table or horse, which is acted upon. Two examples will suffice to illustrate the significance of belief and of the concentrated attention that results from it. The first is taken from the letters of Father P. Lebrun on the divining rod, which appeared in 1696. An old woman once told a treasure seeker that she had always heard that a treasure was buried at a certain place in the fields. The man, who was known as an expert in the art of using the divining rod, immediately set out to locate the gold. Lo and behold, the moment he set foot on the spot described by the old woman, the branch turned downward and from its movements the man gathers that twelve feet below ground there lies buried some copper, silver, and gold. He calls a peasant to dig a pit eleven feet deep, then he sends him away so that no other should get into the secret. He himself digs a foot deeper, but all in vain, for he finds nothing. Standing in the pit, he again takes up the branch. Again it moves, but this time it points upward, as if to indicate that the treasure had disappeared from the earth. Dismayed, he climbs out the pit and questions the branch a third time. This time it points downward once more. He climbs back into the pit. Presently he feels the prick of conscience, for in the 17th century many regarded the dipping of the divining rod as the work of the devil. Terrified, he exclaims, O oh God, if the thing I am doing here is wrong, then I renounce the evil one and his rod. S'il y a du mal, je renonce au démon et à la baguette. Having spoken, he once more takes the rod in his hand to test it. It does not move. Horrified, for now there was no longer any doubt that Satan was the cause of its movements, the man makes the sign of the cross and runs away. But had he hardly gone more than two or three hundred paces when the thought strikes him? Is it really true that the branch will no longer move for him? He throws a coin to the ground cuts a branch from a bush nearby and is overjoyed when he notes how it dips towards the money. Another example is to be found in a report of the well-known physicist Ritter of Munich, which appeared during the early part of the 19th century. Ritter, a man with a bent for natural philosophy and metaphysics, describes an instrument which was to replace the divining rod, and which he called balancier. It was simple enough, consisting of a metal strip that was balanced horizontally upon a pivot, and was supposed to be put in motion in the presence of metals. Ritter used this instrument in his numerous experiments with the Italian Campetti, a man who had achieved a measure of fame in Europe for his ability to discover springs and metals by the use of the divining rod. Carrying the balancier on the tip of the middle finger of his left hand, Campetti, whose integrity one cannot cavil at, had to touch repeatedly a plate of zinc or pewter, and had to count aloud the number of touches he made. The following curious law was found to obtain, that was probably suggested to the subject by Ritter without his being aware of it. With the first contact, the balancier turns to the left, with the second to the right, and with the third it remains at rest. At four it turns once more to the left, at five to the right, at six it remains at rest, etc. It remained immovable only at the so-called triagonal numbers, three, six, nine, fifteen, twenty-one, etc. Ritter tells us that when Campetti did not really count, 
or did not think of the number, then it would have no influence whatever upon the action of the instrument. Thus Ritter ascribes to the agency of electricity, which in the 18th and 19th centuries was made to play very much the same role that Satan had played in the 16th and 17th centuries. The similarity of these two cases and that of Mr. Schilling's is evident. When the questioner of the horse and the bearers of the balancier and of the divining rod are confident of success, they succeed. When they do not expect success, they fail. End of footnotes. Hans's seeming knowledge of the value of coins and cards, of the calendar and the time of day, as well as his ability to recognise persons or their photographs, can now be readily understood. In all of these cases, we had to deal, insofar as knowledge is concerned, only with that of the questioner. The horse simply tapped the number the questioner had in mind. The meaning which was supposed to be expressed by the tapping never existed as far as Hans was concerned. It was only in the mind of the questioner that the concepts Ace, Gold, Sunday, January were associated with One, etc. The same was true with regard to all the other wonderful feats of memory. The sentence Brucker und Weg sind vom Feinde besetzt, the road and the bridge were held by the enemy, which was given to the horse one day and correctly repeated by him on the following day, was not an answer elicited from the horse by means of a question, but rather a system of automatic reactions which were induced by certain involuntary movements of the questioner as stimuli. Far from showing a wonderful memory in these feats, as is claimed for him by the very non-critical compiler Zell, Hans, on the contrary, has at his service a remarkably small number of associations. For besides possessing the ability of any ordinary horse, he recognises only a few meagre visual signals. To be sure, we find in the literature a horse that was said to have recognised 1,500 signals, but all proof is lacking, and the report is so meagre that we cannot discover whether the signals were auditory or visual. Footnote. The French investigators Vachid and Rousseau made a reference to this case, and mistakenly state the number of signals as 1,500 instead of 115. Ettlinger takes over this wrong figure and makes the additional mistake of assuming that the reference is to an original investigation made by the two Frenchmen. End of footnotes. Having thus disposed of all questions concerning the horse's apparent feats of reason and memory, let us turn to those in the field of sensation. We shall begin with vision. That Hans was unable to select coloured pieces of cloth merely upon the basis of colour quality, without reference to their order, was shown in chapter 2. It would, however, be somewhat hasty to infer colour blindness from this fact, as did Romanes on the basis of similar unsuccessful responses on the part of a chimpanzee, Sally of the London Zoological Garden. It is much easier to explain the failure of the horse than that of the monkey on the basis of intellectual poverty, a poverty of associative activity. It presumably can discriminate between the various colours, but it cannot associate with these their names. The existence of chromatic vision in the lower forms is by no means as unquestionable as is assumed by popular thought. Even teleological considerations which are often brought forward, especially that of the ornamental and protective colouring of so many animals, can never do more than establish a certain probability. 
For definite proof, we need data given by observation. We have none in this case, or experimental evidence. Such evidence we have, but it is insufficient in quantity, and unfortunately most of it was obtained under inadequate experimental conditions. Footnote. All told, there are hardly more than half dozen experimental investigations of the colour sense in mammals, to speak only of these. Three of them deserve a special mention. One, the work of an American, Kinnaman, on two rhesus monkeys. Then a brief but careful work by Himstedt and Nagel. These two investigators were able to determine that their trained poodle could distinguish red of any tone or shade from the other colours. And from Professor Nagel, I learned that later the tests were extended, and the same was shown to be true concerning the blue and the green. And finally, there was an investigation which hitherto has been known only from a reference which Professor Dahl, the investigator, himself makes. The work is on a monkey, Cercopithecus chlorocebus grisioviridis desmeret. Professor Dahl has kindly allowed me to look over the records of the experiments. He intends to publish the monograph at a later date. All these investigators arrive at the conclusion that the animals tested by them possessed colour sense. The monkey last mentioned shows one peculiarity. It was unable to distinguish a saturated blue from the black. It will require further tests to clear this up. End of footnote. We know nothing regarding chromatic vision in the horse, though we have often had trained horses which apparently possessed colour discrimination. The earliest report of this kind I find in a work published in the year 1573. Here we find that a number of Germans exhibited two horses in Rome which could, upon request of their masters, point out those persons among the spectators who were wearing stockings of any designated colour. The passage Conoscevano i colori they recognised the colours, proves nothing, and no one has ever heard, even in modern times, of a horse that actually knew colours. Nor did Hans possess anything like that high degree of visual acuity which had been attributed to him. He was supposed to be able to read easily at a distant, small, almost illegible script, which we ourselves could decipher only with the greatest difficulty close at hand. It was supposed that he could distinguish ten and fifty fennig pieces whose faces had become worn beyond recognition for us. None of these accomplishments have stood the test. We have no reason to believe that Hans can see the objects about him more clearly than other horses, regarding whom one usually assumes that they receive only vague visual impressions. Horses do not as a rule seem to be near-sighted, as is often asserted by the layman, but rather somewhat far-sighted, or if we may believe Rigel, who tested some 600 horses, they probably have normal vision. But we are told that many horses, according to some authors, all, have an innate imperfection which detracts considerably from the clarity of vision. This imperfection consists in an irregular formation of the sclerotic coat and of the lens of the eye. The two organs do not have the same refraction in all parts. As a result, objective points are not imaged as points upon the retina, hence the name astigmatism, i.e. without points for this disorder. The retinal image of the object is not only vague, but also distorted. Footnote. There is no justification for the widespread belief that the horse which, on account of the greater size of his eye, more correctly on account of the greater focal distance, receives larger retinal images of objects than does the human eye, for that reason also sees objects larger than we do. 
Horses shying is often explained in this way. But the conclusion just mentioned is erroneous. The retinal image is not the perceptual image. It undergoes many transformations within the nervous system itself. End of footnote. Many will doubt whether with such imperfect images an animal can react to directives so minute as we have asserted to be true in the case of Hans. In considering this question, we must distinguish between the directives for pointing out colours and the directives for tapping and for head movements on the part of the horse. In pointing out and bringing forth pieces of coloured cloth, there is involved in the perception of an object at rest, namely, the direction of the questioner who is standing quietly, whereas in the case of responses by means of tapping, the stimulus is the horse's perception of the questioner's movements. Now, the construction of the horse's eye, as described above, is not favourable for the perception of objects, so-called acuity of vision. This may partly account for the slight success of the horse in those tests in which he was required to select a piece of cloth of a designated colour, insofar as these commands were not accompanied by calls or exhortations. Where human observers averaged 80% correct responses, page 135, Hans, under similar conditions, was successful in only one-third of the tests. In his errors, he was also wider of the mark than were the human observers. The object perceived to be sure is a large one, namely the questioner, and he at close range. We must therefore consider, more specifically, what are the determining factors that make for success or failure of the response. First of all, the innocent questioner very often did not designate the direction with sufficient clearness. Furthermore, Hans presumably was not able to discriminate sufficiently between the direction of the experimenter's eye and that of his head, which two directions did not always coincide. Finally, the horse's attention was often diverted, while he was running towards the piece indicated, by the other pieces lying to the right and to the left. And for this reason, the addition of a single piece to the otherwise unchanged row of five pieces tended to decrease greatly the chances of success. End of section 7. Recording by Jordan Watts, Oxfordshire.